Welcome to another episode of Chefs and Guests on the Spoon Mob podcast feed. This week, I'm joined by co-founder of Cezanne, co-owner of Cezanne Hospitality, sommelier, winemaker, wine director of Cezanne the Restaurant, Mark Bright, who is doing a lot, has done a lot throughout his career. He still has his hands involved with several different things, uh, businesses, restaurants, winemaking, all that stuff. It's a really interesting podcast, how he got his start with wine and everything like that is a pretty unique story. Then he winds up out in Vegas. He's learning from all these people that are starting to study for their master exams and everything like that. He winds up going up to San Francisco and, and eventually working at Michael Mina there and, and then opening Cezanne and everything that went into that and getting Michelin stars, getting the Wine Specter Grand Award, winemaking, you know, getting involved in that, opening his own winery, all this stuff. He has done a lot throughout his career. It's an awesome podcast. I was really surprised we were able to get him just because he is so busy and he agreed to do it. And uh, we had a pretty lengthy conversation and it's great to have people with different perspectives and have gone through, you know, and learned from all these different people and, and looking back on their career, taking the exams really wasn't this big thing and more about learning the knowledge and, and firsthand learning and stuff like that and connections and experiences over getting a piece of paper with your name on it or a pin or anything like that too as well. So not to say there's anything wrong with that for people that have, have strived to achieve those things, but he just kind of, you know, like we're coming to find out with so many of these sommelier episodes, there's just different ways to go about involving yourself in the industry. It doesn't have to be taking tests and taking exams and everything like that too. So you can follow Mark. He's got a lot of stuff that you can follow, but basically at Mark Bright Wine on Instagram. You can also follow at Saison Hospitality. At Saison SF is the restaurant, at Angler San Francisco, at Saison Smokehouse, which is kind of the concept that they did over COVID, and we kind of get into that too as well. At Saison Winery, at Saison Cellar is the online wine platform that you can buy bottles of wine. They have pretty unique stuff. If you subscribe to their newsletter too as well, uh, that'll show up to your inbox and they kind of tell you the latest stuff that they're going to get in or, or is coming, arriving on the way, arriving soon too. So, you know, he's from Chicago, born and raised and then wind up, you know, out in Vegas and stuff like that. So we get into all that kind of stuff. You know, he's done a bunch of different interviews over the course of his career, but he's never done anything that compiled it all in a linear fashion like this. So it's a really cool episode. If you've never been to Saison or anything like that, I encourage you to check it out. You know, we've been there once. It was an awesome experience. Right now, their CDC is Richard Lee. Culinary director is Paul Chung. So those guys are killing it. They got a special dinner coming up with the chef from Maison in France. I think that's sold out, but you can get on a wait list if you're out there and you're listening to this. I think that's for like the week of March 17th there, um, St. Patrick's Day week. So get on the wait list if, if you're in the area, something you're interested in doing. It's a really cool episode and we really appreciate Mark, you know, spending a bunch of time with us talking about all these different things, some stuff he hasn't talked about in, in years um, or thought of or anything like that too as well. So again, follow him on Instagram at Mark Bright Wine and all the Saison stuff and everything. You can follow us on Instagram too as well at Spoon Mob. Check out our website, SpoonMob.com. Make sure to subscribe and follow the podcast on whatever platform you get your podcast from. And without further delay, here's my conversation with sommelier, wine director, winemaker, co-founder, of Cezanne and co-owner of Cezanne Hospitality, Mark Bright. But again, thanks for agreeing to do this and coming on the podcast. I know you're a busy guy. You have your hands in a lot of different stuff. My first experience with anything that you've had your hand in was Cezanne. You know, you do the wine list and everything there, head sommelier, wine director and everything and have a bunch of stuff, you know, relating to that and, and winemaking and what you're doing now. But I want to go all the way back to the beginning 
You're originally from Chicago. How did you get into wine since Chicago is not exactly a town known for wine? Like, yes, you have a bunch of steakhouses and they do have the Michelin Guide now and, and some good wine programs and stuff too. But I would imagine when you were growing up, it was a very steakhouse heavy Maybe a couple of restaurants had some cool wine uh, lists, but it wasn't like it is now. Yeah. So, you know, I can I can redefine when I say I'm, I'm from Chicago. You know, it's one of those things that I generalized my whole life to make it easy for people to understand where I was from. But I actually grew up in Northwest Indiana, East Chicago, outside of Hammond, Indiana, which is, you know, East Chicago. And, my you know, my dad and his nine brothers all worked in steel mills. You know, I didn't grow up on the north side of Chicago where a lot of rich and affluent families are and got exposed to those things at that time. I, I was on the other side, the dodgy side of Chicago. I'd never seen wine or anything besides, I mean, alcohol only was beer growing up when I saw it because I, I grew up, you know, in a family of steelworkers and stuff. And it was beer only, you know, wine occasionally like for a wedding or something like that. But as a kid, never got exposed to it. My dad, uh, you know, my dad worked in, worked in radiology research in steel. So unfortunately, you know, he passed away when I was really young. And his best friend was my godfather. He also passed away. And when he passed away, I was 14 years old. And he left me some savings bonds and a savings CD, which wasn't much, maybe like $15,000. You know, my father was the glue of the family. I mean, you know, my father growing up was the most charismatic, kind human being you've ever met in your life. But he was big, strong, still worker guy, but just you know, just an energy to be dealt with. So when he passed away, it was really hard on my, on my family, my mom, myself, my two sisters. It really kind of broke us up in, in our own personal ways to where it was really difficult to, to be a family without him, you know, without the glue. About a year later, after my godfather passed away, at that point, I knew I was probably going to get an academic scholarship to school. These gifts, this inheritance from him was supposed to help pay for school, but I knew I was going to get a full ride. You never know. I mean, I could have screwed it up in the last year, but I felt pretty confident. And I said, you know what? As a family, what would my dad want to do? He'd want to bring the family together. And my, my mom and my father, when they got married, they went on a honeymoon and they were in Germany and Europe and all around. So I said, hey, I told my mom, I was like, I think it'd be good if the whole family takes a full summer vacation to Europe. Take us to the places that you and dad went on your honeymoon. And you know, we can also go to Paris and Italy. And like, we really like $15,000 Oh my God, 24 years ago, I hate to say it, 24 years ago, eh, you could do a lot in, in Europe. You know, I mean, that's back in the day when you had the book guides that said you can travel Europe for $20 a day. And you can actually do it back then. You, know, <laughs> you can do it now if you had to, but I insisted that we do that. I think it'd be good for the family to get together and let's try to reconnect. I did have some alternative motives there because even though I was a good student, I really wanted to go to Amsterdam because I was really into pot, smoking pot in high school and stuff. And I was an athlete and good student and stuff. But like, you know, I wanted to see Amsterdam because I heard it was legal there. I kind of wanted to see Europe. I was always a, a, an adventurous type. I believed that different cultures, travel and experience with others w w was the way to grow more than it was books. We did the trip, but we were in Paris for a couple of days. I imagined France the way I saw it in the movies cheese and baguettes and countryside. And, you know, I never saw a vineyard before in my entire life. And I, I didn't know about wine and stuff. I just knew wine, you know, wine. I didn't know wine was made from grapes. I asked my mom, I was like, hey, you know, is it, is it okay? I'm, I want to leave Paris for a day and just go on a, a country trip. And they're so into the Louvre and the museums. They wanted to stay. So the day that they booked this um, Seine River trip, which is like one of those riverboat trips all day and you sit down and you get horrible food and they did that. I said, okay, I'm going to take a train. I'll be back nighttime, you know? And I, and I took a trip and I just picked a random town in France and it was called Bone. And Bone is, you know, the home of Burgundy. 
And I went there and coming off to train and bone, you had to go through Dijon and then reconnect down to the commuter training and bone. And I saw these vineyards and I got to the town. It was super tiny and I walked around it and it was just so mesmerizing. And you have to remember 24 years ago, Burgundy wasn't a tourist destination like it is now. It wasn't a world heritage site. Very few people collected Burgundy 24 years ago. It was just starting to become on the map. And especially for a 14, 15 year old kid, you know, from the United States walking out the backpack, I had a hat on. If you can visualize this, you know, the zigzag guy, I had a, a blue hat with a big zigzag patch on it. It was all about Amsterdam for me. There was something so amazing about that trip. You know, I was walking around the town. I accidentally, I accidentally walked into a winery. It's owned by the Joanne family. And they've been using that winery for hundreds of years. And there's these old, huge wooden presses. I mean, we're talking bigger than pickup trucks, man. Just these like things they used to use with the donkeys and like, and I was like, what is this for? They're like, this is where we used to make this person came in out of nowhere. And I was like, oh, I'm sorry, I'll leave. And they're like, no, no, no. Oh, you're American. I can speak English. So we talked and they're like, this is where we used to make wine hundreds of years ago. And we still use it every couple of vintages. And they're like, have you ever had wine? And I was like, not really. Besides, you know, when I was 13, I drank some strawberry hill at this party because a girl liked it. And I was 13 and trying to impress her. They let me taste some wines and they explained the history and, you know, the vineyards being planted thousands of years ago. And I walked away from that day, like my mind was blown that there's a culture outside of what I knew for so long. That was my first spark in wine was the history of it and its connectivity amongst people. You have this amazing trip and you're what, like 15 at the time? Yeah, 15. You have this full ride to college, graduate high school. Up to that point, never worked in a restaurant or anything. I did some busing stuff for a week here or there, like just completely random stuff. Never worked in a restaurant, never formalized. Like, no, no, like, you know, just like helping someone because they needed help in a little restaurant, you know, but never working in a restaurant. Never thought I was going to work in a restaurant. Never thought that was part of my future, with the exception of one experience when I was a kid. But I can tell you about that later. You wind up going to college. Uh, I think you went to University of Nevada, Las Vegas, right? But you also wind up getting a job at Aqua in the Bellagio in Vegas. Tell me, how did all that kind of come together? You have no restaurant experience. You're working in, you know, a Michael Mina restaurant. So that, that happened, like, we're talking by a roll of the dice, chance in life. I mean, it had to do with my sister and a relationship you had with someone that she had that worked there. So I got there and UNLV, University of Las Vegas, was a university which is off campus mostly. There was no, I mean, there's some dorms, but I'm talking like 5% of people going to school there stay in the dorms. I lived offsite. I had a full ride, so I didn't have to pay for school, but you know, I needed to drive and I needed to pay my bills. And I was, I was staying with another sister at the time in Las Vegas, but still there were bills to be paid. I wasn't just crashing on her couch. You know, I graduated high school and the day I graduated, I went to my graduation with my car fully packed of everything. Because when I finished the graduation ceremony, I got in my car and I left to go to Vegas and never looked back on everything in my past. I was like, whole new world, I'm done. I was, I was so excited about everything that was going to happen in my future. I, I guess I was kind of escaping my dad's death and a lot of stuff that happened in my childhood. I was just ready to go. My dad died when I was 11, so I was already kind of an independent adult. I was ready to be truly independent. And anyway, I got to Vegas, got ready for school, and I was there for the whole summer, hottest summer of my life, and, uh, but dry summer, which is nice. And I got a job making omelets at a Marriott courtyard way off the strip. And that didn't work out. And my sister at that time knew the assistant general manager from college um, that was running Michael Mina. I can't remember if I was asking my sister, like, where, where can I go work? I got to do something. I hate this job. Because it's, you know, you wake up at four, you get there at 4.30, you're making omelets. It's just like, 
it wasn't what I expected. You know, I, I would have gone to McDonald's. I would have done anything but that. And she's like, oh, well, you know, my, you know, my friend Aaron is an assistant general manager. It's a really fancy place in the strip, Bellagio. And, you know, she's looking for a busboy. And you don't need that, that many skills, just bread service, clearing plates, made it sound much more easier than it was because that was like being, I can get to that later, but like, wow, man. I was like, yeah, I want to do it. I want to do it. I want to do it. And it's union. And I got paid like 20 because, you know, Bellagio back then, Steve Wynn paid his employees. It was before union. It actually became union when MGM bought it. Sorry. And, but you know, back then I was paid 20 bucks an hour plus $125 a night tips. I mean, dude, more money than I thought I can make after graduating. You know, well, I mean, I wasn't going to graduate college for a long time because when I went to college, I went for pre-med and medical school. I went academically for something very serious, which, you know, I did drop out of years later after I found out how much I loved wine and the team. I was like, wow, you can make this kind of money just doing this. Like, and the captains at that time were making 250, 300 a year, non-pooled house, average check, you know, $300 a person, Epilagio, 250 covers a night, 10 captains, do the math. They were making money. And you know, the Vegas story, they were buying two, three, four, five houses. They all got burned on that. But I was just like, oh my God, I can barely afford one room in my sister's house. You guys have a, you bought a third house? So did you decide on the University of Nevada, Las Vegas, because your sister was out there? So that just seemed like at least there was family closer? Because I mean, you could have gone anywhere after high school. I applied to other schools and I got accepted to other schools, but that's where I got my academic scholarship. So you decided medical school eventually wasn't for you. Do you think like you started going to medical school just because of like, was there a reason really? Like, was it because of your dad kind of an affiliation there and you thought or? No, I didn't have to do with my dad. I think it had more to do with, you know, my, my family doesn't have any doctors or lawyers or, you know, I come from a huge family. Remember my father had eight brothers and one sister. My mom had nine siblings on her side. And inside of all these huge groups of families, there's no doctors, lawyers or anything. They're all teachers or, you know, they're all blue collar workers. And I had this opportunity to like, you know, do something as a doctor or whatever it was. And I picked doctor because that's, I got accepted into that. I never wanted to be a doctor, to be honest with you. I, honestly, I can't remember why I picked it, but I can tell you, you know, a couple years in, I did some stage work with doctors. We have to go around with them in their practice. And I went around with a general practitioner and he spent like four hours of his day, like putting his finger up old people's asses. And I was like, four hours of his day was doing that. Three hours of his day was paperwork for insurance companies and two hours were actually helping someone that was sick. And I was like, this is not what I imagined. That happened two and a half years in. And then I switched to the hospitality school. At that point, I had already met some of my mentors, my original mentors at Bellagio, Master Sonniers, Jay James, Caleb Dow, Rob Bigelow, Paolo, Rob Smith. Like These guys were already taking me under their wing and teaching me about this stuff. And I was kind of like, okay, I can make the same amount of money as a doctor as a psalm at Bellagio, and I don't have to do what I just saw happen. I was like, yeah, I think I, I, I might go down this road. And it was a really hard decision for me because the scholarship was limited. I took the place of someone from another school that could have come in here, did this, and maybe gone off and cured cancer. But, you know, I convinced myself, I'm like, well, I'm never going to cure cancer because I don't care enough. I, I mean, I just don't, I just, I, I'm not going to, like, you have to have drive to do something great. You have to, like, find something you love, put your time and energy into it. And if you do that, you will be great at that. No one just, you know, in a mediocre sense, like, solves or becomes great. You know, you have to love it and, and drive for it. So I didn't feel bad about leaving because I would have always been a mediocre doctor. Maybe I would have killed people. I don't know. I'd probably be better off in the wine world. You know, I disappointed the board at the time and stuff, and I said, I'm going to withdraw go to the food and beverage school and I'm going to study one. 
So how did you get involved then with wine? Working as a busboy, essentially, but obviously it's this you know high-end restaurant that got this great wine list, all these sommeliers there. How does those two kind of worlds connect? Well, you know, it, it really connected through a sommelier at the time there uh, named Caleb Dial. And he was the, the head sommelier at Aqua at Bellagio where I was working. And that, at that time, Aqua and Michael Mino, this is like when Michael Mino is just whew, skyrocketing through the earth, you know? Not saying he isn't now, but it's hard to skyrocket as you open, you know, 50 more restaurants a year. I mean, he, like, he, he, has, his own, he has his own gravity force now, and, and, and as he should, because him and his team and all the people that he's had with him are amazing. But, you know, he was skyrocketing at that time. I was working as a busboy. Christoph was his name. He was the first sommelier when he was there. French guy. We're talking apron and everything. Oh, God, I haven't seen him in so long. He lived in San Francisco for a long time while I've been here. He went off to work for Domaine Loire. I mean, obviously, he did well, but he was the first sommelier. And, you know, he had the pen and the apron. And I was just like, I was mesmerized by him walking around the way he talked to people. And he'd swirl and he'd smell the wine. And he just, he looked like a Cirque du Soleil actor serving wine to people and enjoying his job more than anything. He loved it, you know? He was so knowledgeable. I made this huge wine list. And then he left and then Caleb took over. Caleb came over from Macioni Family Restaurant, La Cirque, if I remember correctly. That's a long time ago. And Caleb, you know, Caleb was advanced, had his little pen, jacket, sitting there talking about wine, tasting, selling wine to people. And I was a busboy, and I, know, I, I didn't know what was going on in the restaurant because I'm not joking. I was thrown into the lion's den of intense service. I mean, imagine doing 300 covers a night, you know, basically all of them five, six course menus. It was intensely for someone that never worked. Like people that got hired as busboys there had like 20 years of experience slashing service at like any kind of restaurant, right? I cooked omelets for a month and a half and I went there. It was, it was the most intense thing I've ever experienced in my life. Like it was, and, but you know, I, I gathered my shit together and I figured it out and I worked my ass off. I worked my ass off just to like get up to speed with them. And I did, you know, and it, and it was, it was one of the greatest experiences. The, the greatest, one of the greatest restaurant experiences in my life was, was those few years, my formative years at Bellagio at Aqua. Caleb was there. He had a pen and everything. And I was very intimidated by Christoph. So I didn't talk to him very much. But when Caleb came in, I felt like I could talk to him. And I was like, Hey, so you're a sommelier. He's like, yeah. Like Christoph was telling me some of the stuff he, you know, what he did as a sommelier. And he told me to, um, he told me to, A, fuck off. You're a bus boy. Two, He's like, you're American, you're a kid, you don't understand what I'm doing. And three, you can never taste the way I taste. You know, not in a bad way, but in a playful way. But he was, he had boundaries, you know? And Caleb, you know, he opened the doors, you know? He was like, well, Mark, you know, I was like, okay, so tell me, tell me what you know about wine. Like he actually asked me questions, whereas Christoph always kind of blocked it off. But that's the old school French sommelier way. I'm better than everyone. Go fuck yourself and move on with your life, you know? I mean, I'll never forget the one thing with Christoph. Because back then, remember, it's not a pulled house, so you have to tip out your psalms and your bartenders and stuff. I remember every night, he would walk up to those guys. They're folding napkins, doing their cash, and he's like, where's my cat? Where's my cat? Where's my cat? Every night, Christoph, where's my cat? That guy was ruthless, and I loved it. Probably the reason why he worked for Domaine Lawal. There's an inside joke there for psalms, and I'm sure they'll enjoy it. Caleb was like, okay, Mark, you love wine. What do you know about wine? I started reading books. I've read a lot of books about wine. I haven't tasted a lot because I'm not old enough to buy, even though I have a fake ID, but I use that for the nightclubs, which I'm still shocked people took. But I mean, you have to remember back 25 years ago in Vegas, no one really cared. And this is before beach clubs and bottle service. This is back then. Anyway, but you know, he was like, okay, Mark, what do you know? And I was like, I went to a place called Bone. It's in Bordeaux. He's like, no, 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 Bone's in Burgundy. I'm like, well, no, it's Bordeaux. He's like, you mean Borgone? I'm like, yeah, Borgone. I knew textbook elements, right? 
I didn't know because I was I was a student. I was a studier. I knew how to I knew how to read and regurgitate information. But I didn't know how to be a sommelier. I didn't know wine. I didn't know what it tastes like. I didn't know what it meant. I didn't know what it felt like. So I just tried to regurgitate things that I could try to connect dots with. Anyway, okay, you're in Bone. Did you go to winery? And I was like, yeah, it's called Juin, which is Juin. Um, this is where the old winery is in, 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 uh, in the heart of Bone. We just started talking and he's like, okay, okay. So you know Burgundy, right? I'm like, yeah, I know Burgundy pretty well. Um, he's like, okay, do you know any other villages besides Bone? I'm like, yeah, I know them all. Bone, Romanet, Merceau, Poligny. Like I did them in all this like deconstructed order. He's like, okay, okay. Can you tell me how to put those villages north or south? I was like, yeah, of course. Would you like me to start with, with, uh, this, with Fixin? which is actually Fessin. Like, you know, there's all these things now I know, but it's like, I knew the words. I memorized the words, but I couldn't communicate it to another wine professional in a way. But yeah, I was like this, 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 this. And I did it in like the worst possible way you can imagine. And, but, but, there, but it was extremely accurate, you know? He's like, do you know the difference between a premier crew and a grand crew? I'm like, yeah, I definitely know between one crew and, and grand crew. I mean, literally, I mean, it was so basic, but like, but he was like, okay, name me four grand crews in Rousseau. I'm like, there are no grand crews in Rousseau. There's only a premier crew in Ludis. You know, I'm saying that now, but like back then, I Leud sticks and, and one cruise. Like, you know, it was so broken up. But the knowledge, he could, like, he could see like my knowledge was obviously I studied the maps. I understand what's there. I understand the core. I've just been given no guidance. It was kind of weird because like he kind of introduced me as an oddity to the other sommeliers that ran all the other restaurants in Bellagio. And they all kind of picked at me for like different regions and stuff. I answered their questions with an amazing amount of depth but with no understanding of how to say it or why it matters. And that's when they were like, oh, they're like, okay, man, we, we, got, we got a young kid. He's 17 years old with all this raw material in his head already implanted in. Let's organize it for him and let's teach him how to do it. That's where they, they all took me under their wing. I couldn't drink wine, but, but you know, at the end of the night, they would always meet at Aqua or Le Cirque or Cherco or Picasso, and they would do blind tastings. And they would let me come and sit in on them. And, you know, I go change and come back out, walk back to the front door, let me come in and they let me blind taste wines. I mean, they didn't let me get drunk there with them, but like, they like really took me under their wing. Like I've never seen anything before. Yeah. I was going to ask, cause like you're 17 at the time and I'm like, well, technically that's not you know, legal probably to, to be tasting wine or everything, but kind of doing it behind closed doors makes sense. So when did you start taking the exams? To become a, a sommelier, because you eventually wind up being the opening sommelier at Michael Meetup in San Francisco when you're 21. But obviously, you took an exam before that. Did the Bellagio or Aqua cover some of your exam to take? My first exam, I had to wait till I was 21. There's, there's a little bit of a backstory to this. So I, at that time, Jay James, who was the chairman of the court at that time, was running Bellagio. He was like, to me, like, God of wine, because he wasn't just my boss's boss's boss you know, corporate, but he was also at that time, uh, if I remember the chairman of the court for the United States, I mean, we're talking like this is what it was. And for me, you know, I, I studied for years before I could take a test. I just turned 18 years old at that point in London where the quartermaster saw me is based. I could take a test, but I can't take one here for another three years. And I got impatient. If you could tell by my story in one way or another, I find something I love and I go after it. And I study and I work hard at it with with no pulling back. Like I just, it's success or failure. It's one or the other, death or championship, right? I went to his office and I said, Jay, I really love, because you know, at this point, Jay was like also very supportive of me quietly um, because he couldn't know that I was tasting, doing things I was doing. But you know, I was like, Jay, I know know you're huge in with the court and stuff. I... I want to know, it's okay with you if I move to London to take my tests and get a job there and work there 
and then maybe come back. There's a couple defining days in my life. And this was one of them. Jay James sat there at his desk covered in gold and diamonds and those things. No, I'm joking. But to me back then, it was like that. It was like, I'm sitting, I'm talking to like, my head was blown, you know, that he allowed me in his office to ask him a question. You know, Jay's like, you know, yeah, I can do that. I can set you up with that. But he's like, you're not ready. He's like, you just, you've been studying for a year and a half. I know you want to go do this and I know how hungry you are. But he's like, you have four guys that are master. Well, at that time, they weren't masters. They actually passed their masters when I was 19. So all these guys were studying for the masters while they were training me. And you're studying for what is now the certified, right? Because there was no intro exam. If you're looking for when I turn 21, I can study for the certified. Yes. I was studying because I loved, I loved the content. And so with Jay, I was like, I can go to London and pass that test right now. And then I can go, I could stay there. I could pass my advance. I could be the youngest master so many in the world. And he's like, yeah, I think you could do that. But I'm going to be honest with you, career-wise, I think it's a bad move. He's like, you might not be the youngest someone. There might be someone else better than you in London or something else, right? But he's like, you're working under five guys that are most likely going to pass their master. And four of them did in that time I was there with them. And you're sitting here tasting DRC and Petrus. You're getting more experience here than you're ever going to get in any restaurant in London. He's like, you can do what you want to do, but I am strongly advising against it because you are getting the greatest experience in the world right here, right now. It's like, imagine being Lou Gehrig in his rookie year, getting a chance to play with all these great Yankees, Babe Ruth and everything, and learning from them before he goes on to his career. I mean, he was the last little piece to like, Mickey Mantle and those guys, they never played with Babe Ruth and Dimaggio and all these guys. No, 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 no. It's like, Lou Gehrig had that one chance, you know? I had a chance to like, sit there and hit grand slams every day and drink DRC. Hard to pass that up. He convinced me and I stayed. And I said, I'll wait till I'm 21. That was one of the greatest moments of my life when he told me that because honestly, if I would have gone to London, I would have dropped in a world and I would I would have been working in restaurants that didn't have what Bellagio had, that didn't have the chefs. I mean, I had five guys studying for their masters right on the cusp of it and Jay James, the chairman, coaching on a daily basis. I didn't leave that just because I wanted the pin early. He's like, forget about the pin. He's like, you'll have a hundred pins when you get older. Stay here and you'll have more connectivity and pins than you'll ever want. And I, I, and I felt I, you know, he slowed me down a little bit. That was the first time that happened in my life. And it's happened a couple of times. You stay there for a few years and then eventually you find your way up to San Francisco. And at some point you do take the exam too, as well. So fill all that in like your exam experience. Well, it's not certified back then. It was intro advanced and master. This is how old I am. There was no certified back then. There was only three layers back then. People tell me, they're like, oh, I took my certified. I'm getting ready for my intro. And I'm like, ah, man, I'm old. When I turned 21, I was already set up to go to San Francisco. Between that time of 18 and 21, one of the guys that passed his master um, that was running Churco or Le Cirque. Oh, I can't remember. Paula was running one and Rob Smith was running the other. Rob, J. James left to go do this big new Vinfolio thing, this big opening in Napa, CEO and you know, whatever, big money stuff. And Rob Bigelow took his place. And he was one of the five guys training me. And he was, I'm going to tell you something. Every person was amazing in their own way. And I still communicate with them to this day. And I still have a relationship, even though we don't talk to each other, maybe sometimes for once a year. Some of them I talk more frequently. But Bigelow was like the coolest guy in the world. He was like, to me, he was like seven foot nine, but I think he was like six, four or something. But he took over Bellagio. And he also took over uh, the wine education at UNLV. And I was going to UNLV in the, in the hospitality school and I was under 21, you know, running a program like Blasio at that time, one of the 10 largest programs in the world. He got busy. He couldn't teach a class. So sometimes I would take over and teach the class, even though I was 
20 years old, 19 years old. I'm like, okay, you know, when I was 20 years old. I could have been 19 because it took two years from that point. Yeah. 20 years old, underage, teaching a class at UNLV. But, you know, I remember, I remember there was one day, I'll never forget it. I was 20. There was a soulmate in San Francisco named Rajapa. Like, a, like I'm talking skyrocketing person, trained under Larry Stone, but didn't take tests. He didn't believe in tests. He was a burgundy guy. He wanted burgundy and he just believed in great burgundy and great wine, Austrian, Rhone. Like he just, he didn't care about the test. He just wanted his focus, you know? And that communicated a lot to me hearing his, hearing stories about him. Cause I, you know, I did like the quartermaster so many, but at the same time, I wasn't like when I, when I first went to school, medical school, so like there was all these like fraternities, right? But that wasn't my thing. But, but I don't like this pressure of doing something that you don't believe in because others want to. And I, and I like to be independent. I just, I like to act to follow the thoughts and, and the morals and the things I believe in. And I heard about Raj not doing the court, being one of the best out there, and especially being a burgundy focused expert. To me, that was like, oh yeah. He moved down for a limited amount of time to open up some restaurants for Michael Mina because at that time he was working fifth floor. Michael Mina left Charles Cundy um, and then started his restaurant group and they opened Sea Blue and they did all these openings in MGM really fast. Bang, 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 right? So Raj was down there. I was working five days a week as a sommelier at Bellagio. Just started fresh, man. I'm talking as fresh as it gets, right? I went over there. And when he first came down, the first week he was there and they were barely opening the restaurant. I went over there and I said, Raj, I've heard all about you. I know you're a burgundy guy, blah, 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 this and that. Is it okay? My two days off, I come and work for you for free just to learn from you, just to taste with you. Just so you can tell me to go move boxes. Tell me what, it doesn't matter. I'll do it. And he's like, okay, you know, no problem. I ordered a wine. I was there with my two sisters. I went to the bar. I went, I went and met him at the bar. Like I didn't even know him. Like I wasn't even corporate or anything. I was just like a Mina uh, employee at Bellagio. So I went to order some wine. I ordered a half bottle of Chateau Mousseau, 1995. And Raj was like, oh, okay. He's like, why do you like this wine? I'm like, well, I've never had it before. And I wanted to see because I've heard a lot about it. I've read a lot about the Hokara family, blah, 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 this and that. And he's like, you know, he's like, it's interesting to see someone that wants to go outside of their boundaries as opposed to ordering something, you know, that's a bang, bang winner, you know? I'm like, well, you, you have to taste new stuff if you're going to learn. You can't stay in your own little bubble forever. And there was a relationship there that built. And uh, I did that for a few months. Didn't have a night off for six, seven months, man. And Roger's like, listen, you know, Mina, Michael's opening up his flagship restaurant, Union Square. It's going to be the biggest opening in San Francisco. It's going to be this huge thing. Grand award list out of the gate, 4,000 selections. Do you want to come and be my song? I'll be the wine director. You'll be the song, just the two of us. And I was like, I didn't ask, like, what's the pay is going to be? I was, I, I'd ask him, how many covers are we doing? What's the work schedule going to be like? I was like, no problem. I'm in. But I have to talk to Rob Bigelow, who's the wine director of Bellagio, because they gave me, they trained me. They gave me all the chances in the world. I got to ask him first. That's the only good thing to do. I can't just bounce on him. And Raj was like, if you wouldn't have said that, I probably wouldn't have hired you. Not like it was a test. But, you know, back in those days, someone's word meant something. I don't, I don't, I'm not saying it doesn't mean now, but like now people don't think about it. Back then it meant, you know, and I didn't do it at work. I did it at UNLV. We we're setting up for a tasting and we're putting glasses down. Me and Rob, no one's in the room, just me and him. And I said, hey, hey, Rob, I, I got to ask you a question, man. Raj asked me to move to San Francisco and be his corporate sommelier to not only open this restaurant, but help with all the others and open the biggest wine list in Union Square and San Francisco's history with my coming new flagship. And he told me I could drink DRC every day. And, you know, I got weak and I, and I kind of told him yes, but like, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to go unless you let me go because you, you've trained me so long. You've guys given me so many opportunities and I, I don't want to let you down. I'll never forget it. Rob, right there at that moment. And he's a big guy, like I said, six, four, six, five, right? And he's bent over putting glasses down and he, stands up fully 
fully up like this, right? And he turns around and he's like two rows above me. So now he looks like nine and a half feet tall, like Xerxes in 300. I'm like, whoa. And he said, Mark, I know how much you love Burgundy. Raj is the greatest Burgundy expert in the country. He's like, if you don't take this opportunity, you're a fucking idiot. He's like, you need to go and do this. He's like, I know you. You're not a master sommelier. You're not a court guy. You're not that kind of guy. You are a burgundy guy. You are a standalone, love what I love, follow my passion kind of guy. He's like, this is the greatest opportunity you've ever been given. If you don't do it, you're a fucking idiot. And I took that as a letter of resignation, honestly. Like, I was like, okay, I'm going to do it. Do I need to give you a formal letter? He's like, don't worry about it, man. We'll, we'll figure it out. He's like, how long do you have? I'm like, well, I have to be there in three months. He's like, all right, then let's have a great three months at the restaurant. Let's train you as much as we can. Let's taste as much as we can. And we're going to send you off with as much knowledge as we can in San Francisco. I thought he was going to be like so upset at me for not staying and sticking with the team and the quartermaster summaries. He didn't give a shit. He saw the opportunity that I had and he knew it was a perfect fit for me. And he's like, you have to go do this. He was really sad about me leaving because, you know, there was a group of them that wanted me to be the youngest master sommelier and to have their pride, a part of it, like we train the youngest master. But he saw that like, this is the right path for me. And I respect him for that more than anything to this day, you know, because he, he could have, he could have played that card in so many different ways, but he did what was right for me. And I'm, you know, forever grateful. So when you get up to Michael Mina, you're working there, you're working with Raj, and then, I mean, you do that for a while. Do you ever take any of the courts tests or anything like that? Yeah, I did. I did the advanced exam. Yeah, because I already, I already took the intro and it was intro advanced. Because remember, there was no certified back then. I mean, here's the thing. So I got to San Francisco. The quartermaster sommeliers, it was pushed on me by all the guys that were, you know, training for their master sommelier. You know, they wanted me to be their Tom Brady. They're like, we're going to train this kid. He's going to pass at 23 years old. We're going to tell everyone that we're the best trainers. But like, they didn't realize deep down inside, I didn't want that. Like I wasn't doing wine to have a gold pin and be a master. I was doing wine because I genuinely just loved it. And I love the history and I love the winemakers involved in it. And then just, you know, the complete unknown of why wines are so great from certain regions. And it's just like, I was, I was still a curious kid that had too much pressure put on. Going with Raj relieved that pressure and just let me enjoy the wines I want to enjoy. And Raj you know, like going there and showing up with Raj, I went to the advance. I never passed the advance because I'll be honest with you. I really didn't give a fuck at that point because, you know, I mean, no, I'm not joking. I mean, I mean, because I was already at that point, I was already flying to Burgundy twice a year and hanging out with the Brit de Villain and like winemakers and Jean-Marc Rouleau and stuff. Like, fuck, do I need to pass a master for, man? I'm like, to me, I'm in, there's nowhere. Where else am I going to go? You know, I can't go anywhere else. Raj is like giving me the, the golden ticket of, being exposed to the greatest winemakers and also the greatest sommeliers around Europe and chefs and everything. Like I was engaged in absorbing food and wine knowledge that I didn't care about who I had to regurgitate to. I was just trying to absorb it. I was trying to hold it in. And I'm a relatively, you know, I'm not a complete idiot, but I'm not the smartest person in the world, but I was trying to like, just take that life experience in. And the court, man, that didn't matter to me anymore. I want this. Because what Raj showed me wasn't a gold pen and wasn't the fact that I could tell everyone else I knew what I was doing. It was the fact that I knew everyone that was doing it. And that's what mattered. And it was so funny. So I did my intro. I had to fly to Columbus, so I had to do the intro. And I passed it, flying colors. I mean, come on, it was an intro, right? And then me and a bunch of guys were out drinking afterwards, congratulating each other. And the guy that was driving us back home, who was a sommelier in Columbus, got stopped for a DUI, got arrested, and we all had to go home in cop cars. <laughs> 
I wish I could tell you I remember his name. I met him that day. We took the test. We passed. We got hammered. He got arrested. Never saw him again. Uh, I mean, I didn't get arrested. I got taken home. I got taken to my hotel in a cop car. When you took the advanced, what was the hardest part for you? Or was it just you didn't give a shit about it and you were just taking it? No, no, I did. I, no, no. Okay, so here's the thing. So I did give a shit a lot. Because at that point, I was just in San Francisco. I was still very young and it was still a part of me. I did care. And there were a lot of people there that were still rooting for me. It wasn't that I didn't care, uh, but it was that at that time in my really early 20s, when I took that test, because we opened Mina, we got the Grind Award year one, Michael Bauer, four star, like we were just cloud nine, right? And I'll be 100% honest with you, it wasn't so much I didn't care, but it was the ego of that I thought I was already at the top of the mountain and I stopped working for it. That's what made me fail that test, was that I thought I was too big for my britches and I failed by my own misperception of my path. I let my ego get ahead of me in my journey before I had my knowledge and experience. And that's what allowed me to fail. I started becoming one of those guys that thought he knew more than he did. And that cured with me for a couple of years because I, you know, I was on the cover of magazines and this and that. And honestly speaking, if I look back at it, my experience, my knowledge would have been a lot better if the Michael Mina group didn't put so much PR on this young sommelier and didn't bog me down with all this killer stuff that made me feel like, you know, it was more detrimental than it was positive for the long run of my career for potentially the extensive time I could have spent with the Mina group and those things. And it it put me in an area with ego and unfortunate substance abuse and alcohol abuse that really dragged me down and, and stopped my growth, you know? I wouldn't have been able to tell you that 10 years ago, but turning 40 this year and being older and, and haven't experienced a lot of these problems and, and you know, going through rehab and, and getting out of those, you know, before in my life, I wouldn't, I wouldn't have been able to say that to you directly. Wine, food, everything, it's a journey. It was too much too fast. And I ate myself alive. You're at Michael Mina, working there, and eventually, 2007, you open your first own spot, local kitchen and wine merchant, which I think is still around today, but I don't think you're involved with it. How did that all come together? It's going to kind of tie back into my partying when I first moved to San Francisco and stuff. I I met uh, a chef named Ula Fender, um, who was a great friend, and he had a restaurant called Ula, which was late night. Raj and I and all the Psalms and everyone, you know, back in those days in San Francisco, there were a lot of late night restaurants that the restaurant community would go to and eat and party and, you know, burn their energy off from service and everything. Ula and I became great friends. And at that time, I was working for Rajat. I was working for Mina and stuff. And I just, something about me naturally, you know, my mom was a teacher uh, and she taught business and entrepreneurial education, investment and stuff like that. So I I grew up with a mother that, that taught me how to be an entrepreneur and how to be independent. And especially after my father died, that really got intense. And I loved working for Michael on those things because Michael Mina, you know, there's one thing about Michael Mina group that's amazing. And I, and I wish more restaurant groups had what he has. And that's a sense of family. And going back into it, probably the biggest reason, I mean, outside of me really loving wine and stuff like that, there's always a deep down reason why someone really dives into the work they're going to do for their life, whether it's because of family has done it before or because there's a certain connection. For me, my father died at 11. I didn't have a father-like figure until I went to Bellagio. And then all of a sudden I had five father-like figures 
that were supportive and training me and amazing. So that's what really, I think that's, that's, I think that's one of the things like, you know, I was, I, I was interested in wine. I was studying, but I think that's what made me love it was the fact that there is a wine community of mentors, of father-like figures I, I didn't have in my life and I needed. And they, and they took me under their wing in more ways than one and, and, and brought me into this family of food and wine and what restaurants really are. And Michael Mina, his restaurant group, the Michael Mina restaurant group with Raja Parra and more importantly than anyone, Patrick Hummel, who, who is his right-hand man, guy doing all the service in front of the house. They truly instill a family-like environment. And I know there's been some little hairs and there's over time with Michael and staff and this and that. Come on, guys. Over 30 fucking years, something's going to happen, okay? We've all flirted with danger over 30 years and stuff. But Michael truly cares about people around him and truly creates a family experience. And that's, that's what made me love restaurants, food and wine, and, you know, is something like that. At the end of the day, underneath that was my entrepreneurial spirit. I need to do something myself. And, and, I, and I know Raj runs amazing programs and stuff, but I was like, I can do this on my own, you know? And Raj always had control over the programs. I wanted to like do something on my own. And I was so young, I was like, uh, you know, if I fuck it up, I can start over again. If I fuck it up, I can start over again. I can always rebuild, you know? The local kitchen wine merchant for me was an amazing experience for the first time being an owner and doing these things. And it didn't work out. Sure enough, Michael Mina and his corporation, you know, all those guys, they, they brought me back in his family. And let me come back and be with them immediately until I figured it out. And then it was, you know, it was during that time when Josh was, Josh Skanes, my business partner that started Cezanne, he was there corporate doing uh, menu development stuff. I mean, it was before, I met Josh before with Michael Mina, but, you know, it was, it was during that time when I came back where it was like, you know, there, there was a time for us to, I came back to it when you're a part of a great corporation and you're used to the grind and the, and the day-to-day, right? And then you leave and you see a different world. You come back with a different mindset and be like, you know what? I know how we can do this corporate world in a better way. And I'm not saying I wanted to be better than Michael Mina. It's just I wanted to do it different. And Josh was like, I want to do it different. We wanted to have four or five tables. And instead of doing 300 covers a night making money, we didn't care about money. We just wanted to be the best. And it didn't matter what it took, you know? And, and that's why we started Cezanne. Cezanne was built between an idea between Josh and I to only have four or five tables. That's why it's always been extremely small and limited because it wasn't about charging more. Charging more, the, the, the amount of money that we charge for the restaurant, that comes because you only have five tables and you have 30 guests a night and 90 staff. We just wanted one time in our life, both young guys, to see how good we could be. How far could we push our own personal limits to the best? And that's why Cezanne came from that. And it came right after local kitchen wine merchant. And the reason I left Local Kitchen Wine Merchant was it was four partners, me, Chef Rula, his ex-wife, Maria, who's the GM, never going to business with, a, with two people that are divorced. And our fourth partner was a real estate guy that thought he knew everything about restaurants. And that was, that was brutal, you know? I mean, the thing is, like, the four of us, it didn't work out. Because, like, me looking back at that relationship now as business partners in a restaurant, I'd be like, that's a fucking disaster. But I was young. I didn't know. And none of us had bad intentions and none of us did anything bad against each other. It just wasn't right. And the reason why it still exists today and is, is successful today is because I took myself out of the equation and they were able to find their own way through it. And that's why they're good restaurateurs. You know, that was the, the greatest lesson learned. 
to recap for people listening, you're at Michael Mina, you open this local kitchen, doesn't really work out too many kind of conflicting personalities. Go back to Michael Mina, kind of link up with Josh Skeens. You guys wind up opening Saison. Like you said, you're really just about trying to push the boundaries of what you both can do, not really concerned about money. Just really quick, just to, to you know, plug something in there. At the same time I was doing local, Josh did this business idea with Michael called Cart 415 which was these sandwiches and stuff that he's serving in these like buildings. Josh came to a realization the same time I did that we're not good at casual. We excel at like extreme, amazing service. Like we're focused on the highest, highest, highest step. We thought we could do these things and make some money and stuff. But at the end of the day, we looked at each other and said, no, 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 no. We're better off just doing the best in the world. We're better off just killing it. Let's just go back to killing it. Who cares about the money? With that mentality, because Cezanne starts as basically a pop-up restaurant. It's set up, broken down every night. No, set up, broken down every week at the beginning. Some of that is financial, obviously, because you're two guys trying to start you know, your own restaurant and everything. But also in a weird way that does eliminates all other distractions for the guests, right? Like they're only focused on the food, what's in front of them, the wine. They're not focused on this piece of artwork over here or the chandelier over here kind of thing. The, the way that happened was out of pure necessity. And the reason is we looked at trying to take over spaces in San Francisco in the Ferry building. We tried to do everything we could, right? To find a great location, we can do this 20-person restaurant. Because we, he and I did the math. Josh and I sat down and did the math. After 18 people at one time, you will start compromising perfection. 18 people was the number. So we looked at spaces. We can do this. We couldn't get any of it. And on top of that, when we even got close to one, we couldn't get money. We couldn't get investors. This is 2008. We couldn't get, no one's going to give you money for anything, man, no matter how amazing your idea is, right? So we were like, okay, fuck it. 09, Josh, where, where Cezanne originally was in the mission, that's the place that Josh used as the production kitchen for Cart 4 and 5. And he's like, you know what? This is like an old barn. We can, we can flip this around. We can do it here. You know, he, he had a battle with the, the, the building owners because it's commercial kitchen. There's bakeries and everything there. But we had to like change everything at night. There was this big gallery room, completely empty, that they would use for like private events or like art galleries and stuff, a walk around, whatever. And down the street, there was this storage room. And that's where we kept the tables and chairs. And we bought all this stuff. So we would have to, we did it. It was beginning at Saison on Sundays is what it was called. And we would have to go there at 8 a.m., bring all the tables and chairs, construct an entire restaurant, and then do service in it, and then break it all down. We had to be done by 6 a.m. the next day. And we did that for months, man. We didn't have money for plates or anything. We didn't have any investors. No one would give us money, you know? Beginning of 09, I had an idea. Uh, and I was like, hey, here's the deal. You know, why don't we sell tickets to all the dinners for six months, take all the cash in, buy all the plates and everything, and then just tight string it as much as we can to make sure it lasts till six months. And we did that. And we did a couple of dinners to promote it, right? And I'll be honest with you, we were super, super lucky because one of those first few dinners we did, Michael Bowery called, you know, he heard about it. He came. We didn't invite him or anything. He just showed up and he had an amazing dinner. And he wrote this article. It's like, you know, Joshua Skanes, the chef from Shea TJ at that time, because he was just coming back. Mark Bright from Mina and stuff. He's like, these two together could be amazing. And what I just experienced is one of the most amazing things ever. And because of Michael Bauer, I know he's not writing with Chronicle anymore. And I know there's a lot of controversy with him for years. People hate him. People love him. I've known Michael for a long time. He's written bad articles about me. He's written good articles about me. But I'll tell you one thing about Michael Bauer. 
He's honest, he's fair, and he's one of the most educated writers we know in San Francisco, no matter what anyone says. And he wrote a great article about us that sold out our six months. It, it allowed Cezanne to beat. If without that, we would have we would have probably just went on to corporate jobs or something. After that article happens, eventually you guys move into a bit more of a permanent structure where you don't have to break everything down every night. No, no, you, no, you missed the multiple steps there. We did Sundays for a while, okay? We were able to convince the building owner to let us do Friday, Saturday, Sunday. We needed a little bit of money then, and we took a loan from a family friend, and then we did Friday, Saturday, Sunday. And that's when we really, that's when shit started to get real. You know, that's when I really started to grind up. That's when we were like, holy shit, this shit's going to happen. You know, and people were writing more. And then you started having the food influencers. And this is right at the beginning of like, you know, Instagram and people coming in, like, you know, sitting there taking pictures of their food as it turns cold and bullshit like that. You know, it's like, that's like, it just started evolving. I mean, you have to remember this time, you know, no venue, no nothing. Like it was just us doing this. And they were, I mean, you know, venue was preparing, they were building. The energy right there coming after 08, man, was like, it was going to happen. But one of the greatest things during that time, in my personal opinion, my favorite time in the restaurant industry in San Francisco was between 2009 and 2014. Because, you know, we used to throw parties every two Saturdays and invite 300. We used to invite all the restaurant people, Corey, all those guys, everyone. We used to invite everyone over, have these big blowout parties. And anyone in the restaurant industry listening to this remembers the funnel cakes and the hard parties we used to have. But we used to crush it till five in the morning, 200 people. And we just sit there and exchange ideas and have fun and get hammered. And it was like, there was a moment of full, like, like no one cared about what people thought. We just cared about what we were working for. And we were all there together. And there was no stigmatism about three stars or anything else. It was an amazing period of time. Coming out of that and going into 2013, when we opened Saison where it is now, to where we were three stars. It went from like Mucker Pierre White style to like corporate style. And everything in the city flatlined. The energy, the partying, the craziness. I think we lost something special. I mean, but it was great because obviously after 13, we, you know, we got our, our third star and world's 50 best and everything moved on. But, you know, there was something about that four-year period that uh, I wish I could write a book about. But I can't because we need to all go to jail. We'll go back just a couple of years. So eventually, Cezanne, you guys moved to kind of the second location, which was like a small garage. No, no, that was the second location. That was at the second location. After we opened the second location in 13, that small garage area, that was after we opened the first space for a year. That's the space that like would flood when it rains or whatever? The original space in the mission would flood. I still got pictures I can send you. Me floating in a wine barrel smoking a cigarette for him being like, I don't know what's going on, but we're going to figure it out. It flooded three times over there and it was horrible, man. No, the new location, it never flooded. 2011, I think is when you guys get the first Michelin star, right? Maybe, I think so. I think it was 2011 based on what I've been able to, to cobble together. Uh, it was 2011, I think. Can I be honest with you? Like none of it, none of it hit me until we had a third star. Really? Okay. So the first star, you guys were just kind of like, cool, that's great, but well, I mean, you have to understand something like Josh and I, you know, it's like we worked so hard. We built it so hard. We building a restaurant and breaking it down, building it up for three days and breaking it down to empty room and then rebuilding a restaurant every week. Can you imagine building a restaurant, tables, chairs, plateware, silverware, everything for three days a week and then breaking it down? And do, can you imagine reopening a restaurant every week for a year and a half of your life? That, my friend, I don't think anyone's ever done. And we did that. I mean, for me... 
forget all the accolades in the world, forget all the hard work in the world. That right there for a year and a half to get one star, for me, that, that, that makes me feel like a man more than anything else. Building a restaurant, building a restaurant every week and shutting the entire thing down, boxing it up and putting it away and then doing it again four days later. It's exhausting thinking about it. You say it's awesome. You know, can I tell you something? You say it's awesome now. I, I say it's awesome because I think it's amazing. Well, it's awesome, but it's also exhausting. Like just the concept, you know. Doing it was one of the most anxious building, stressful things I've ever done in my life. How did you guys find out that you got the first star in 2011? Do you remember anything about that? Josh got the phone call. Josh came down to a meeting with the staff and he was like, hey, guys, we got one star. So uh, let's get to service tonight. Let's do better because we deserve more than one. That's what he said. He's like, we deserve three. Let's go. We need to keep going. Push harder. And I was like, all right, man. Two, same thing. I remember, I remember when we got three. I was at a restaurant in um, North Beach called Piperada. And I was there with the owner of um, Domain and, and uh, Maison Latour from Burgundy. And I see the phone call from Josh. And I know it's Michelin Day, right? And, I, and I, I turn it off and I put it away. I see another one from him. Immediately, turn it on and put it away. I see a third one from him. I'm like, okay, I'm taking the call. And I'll never forget it. I went outside and Piperad is there uh, in North Beach and stuff. I went out to the street. Josh called me. And he's like, hey, man, we didn't do it. We didn't do it. We didn't get three. And I was like... All right, it's fine, man. You know what? We've we've been pushing this game for a long time. We're working hard. Let's keep let's keep working. Just keep working. Don't worry about it. Just put our head down. He's like, I'm just fucking with you, man. We got three. And I was like, and he's like, don't tell anyone because like when you get a call from Michelin, you're not allowed to say anything until they release it. And so I had to go back into a tasting. All the top sommeliers in the city, the winemaker from Louis Latour and stuff. And I had to sit down and I came back in, and everyone knows it's Michelin Day, right? I came back in with a grin. I'm not talking like grin ear to ear. I'm talking like creepy ass, like Jack Nicholson, Batman grin that's like painted onto your face, right? And they're like, oh, and they just, I didn't say anything, but they did a little cheers. I was like, hey, don't worry about it. It's not going to carry your wine. Let's move on. 2012, I think is when you created the Bright Wine Fund. What was the idea behind that venture? The Bright Wine Fund was created to uh, do collectible wines and those things to our clients but also to you know, be able to purchase wines in support of the restaurant to where we can find more clients. And, you know, it's like basically is, um, you know, assisting the restaurant in their grand award, but also selling wines to clients, you know? So there is profitability scale there and a support level there. And then that eventually morphs into Saison Cellar in a way. Correct. Yeah. So, yeah, so, we, so that was a, that was a, that was a five-year live fund. And, and, you know, honestly, it didn't, it didn't perform that well. It barely broke even. We got some of the, you know, we got the investors' money back and stuff. But it was never really successful because, you know, I was always pulled into things in the restaurant and I did my best to make it as profitable as possible. But, there, you know, I mean, in any business, there's, there's roadblocks, there's hurdles. And then it morphed into Saison Wine Fund. The reason we, it morphed into Saison Wine Fund is that we have, we have, new, we have new investors in the Saison and they really want to support and they put a bunch of money into, you know, support the retail and brokerage aspect of it. And because, you know, at first it was Bright Wine Fund, it was kind of difficult to use a personal company with... Once you form the hospitality group, like it's kind of hard to have two. It was known, it was completely known contractually that I was selling retail and we were selling to the restaurant and everything was, it was all mutual and no. I mean, the investors Saison were, were known about that. There were a lot of investing to Bright Wine Fund. Some of them did, some of them didn't. And, you know, it's like, you know, it was, it was a... Um, it was a mutual situation. And then Saison Wine Fund came along and they really wanted to promote it hard. And me personally, I was closing down Bright Wine Fund. I didn't want to like, I was like, yeah, I'm not really sure if I want to continue. 
but they're like, no, we'll support with the brand and everything else. And then and new investors really helped us kind of push it through. And, and now we have season seller and it's a good operational retail business. After you create a bright wine fund. So this is 2012, 2013 timeframe. You started vinyl wine bar. No, I was never a partner of that. I was never a partner. No. So vinyl, if we take a, a couple big steps back, when we started Saison in the mission one day a week, all the way up to three days a week, there was a third partner in Saison restaurant. His name was Chris Escada. He, after about a year, year and a half, we got into three days, you know, and you can, you can quote him or ask him about this, but it's pretty straightforward. He decided I'm going to leave this spectrum because I don't, he worked for me at, at, at local kitchen wine merchant. He was a server. But he was like one of the brightest, best. He was great. I mean, we're talking, this guy can like definitely be GM, partner, no problem. Very intelligent human being. He started working with us, doing everything with Josh. And I think just him and Josh were just like, he was just like, I can't, I can't do it. Like, I can't deal with a chef like this. So he decided to leave. And you know, everything kind of, you know, worked out from there afterwards with him. This is part of the why, reason why we do the podcast is you come across stuff and it's like saying that like, you know, you were involved in this and everything. And it turns out, no, not, not really. So basically what happened there was there were two big business owners and stuff in San Francisco named Martel and Nabil. And, and Nabil and his brother are huge real estate owners. And, you know, they own like sandwich shit, great nightclubs and bars. Like, like they're, the, they're the guys you never know about that own all the super successful businesses, you know? And they had this property and we did this thing called vinyl where we did vinyl and those things like that. Uh, I mean, vinyl, you know, music and stuff. Chris took it over. He ran it. I just kind of like, we had, it was our relationship together. I helped him pick the wine and stuff like that. I was never, you know, I was never a partner, never took profit from it or anything. I just kind of helped Chris out on his way. And then, you know, he opened a couple other restaurants in which I helped him on the way and those things. And then now he's selling real estate in Nashville and just killing life. Then you kind of started Partage Winery. Is that you? Yeah. Partage. Partage. Yeah. Partage yeah, in French means to share. To share. I did Partage started Partage in 13. And I did that with a different business partner that was part of a business partner with Saison Group and everything. And because I really fell in love with Santa Cruz and I really wanted to make wine. So now, you know, Saison Winery and everything that we have now is what based off of Partage. So Partage started in one way. It bled through a couple of years and then it turned into Saison Winery with the new partners that came in. They invested the money in and stuff and they, and they bought the winery and Saison Winery began because for me, I just wanted to make wine. For, you know, at that point, the only way to like, I wasn't trying to like build a winery to make a million dollars and stuff like that. It wasn't that. It's just like when you work in wine long enough, you need to, you need to evolve and I need to evolve and I need to understand more in what wine is, right? And the only way to do it is to farm it, to make it and to make mistakes and learn about, you know, the wine and what you're buying yourself. How do you make it? And that's what really took me into the winemaking. Was that always like a lifelong goal for you, though, when you first got into wine was to one day have your own winery, like your own winemaking operation? When I first walked into wine, I was 15 years old in Burgundy. I never saw a vineyard before. I saw it. I got exposed to it. I thought it was cool. I just wanted to go to Amsterdam and smoke weed. So when I first saw a vineyard, <laughs> there was no life going. And what happens with wine, like I said, you know, before, you know, with the, the Somis that took me under, it made me feel like I had multiple fathers. I felt like I was in family. And then you have a Mina group that really, really brings you into a family and makes you grow. And then I go off and do my own companies. And I hope over time, the people that have worked underneath me and the people, because I mean, we have 
10 people underneath us that own their own businesses now. I hope that they felt like a family at one point. I hope I have, and it's not me. I mean, it's, these are their businesses, their ideas, but I hope that they felt like they were a family at one point. Our life, you know, in the food and wine business is extremely circular and coming and going, right? But the love I feel for my mentors, Mina and everyone else, I hope that underneath, and there are a lot of young people that have worked for me that I've, I've given that love to, and I've tried to. I can't do it the same way Mina can. I can't do it the same way Yumo can. Patrick Kimmel, I can't do the same way other people can, but I hope that they feel the love in which I gave them because I wanted them to do their best. And every time they open a place, I've given everything I can to them. You know, I mean, that's all we have here is a circular movement of ideas, purity, and love, and passion to make our guests happy. Staying with Partage for a few minutes here, you know, you start kind of doing winemaking for the first time, really. Like before that, maybe you've blended stuff. You're fully involved in the winemaking process at that point, except for, like, I mean, I'm, I'm assuming you guys were leasing either a vineyard or... Yeah, yeah, we're leasing vineyards, but, you know, we're directing the farming there. Leaf, you know, canopy management, watering, all the stuff. Like, we're involved in, like, with the exception of, like, literally walking out there and, like, turning the water on and off, like, we're directing it. You don't have to go out there to do it yourself to be a winemaker. We did that for a long time, but I also worked with a lot of great winemakers, you know, John Bargetto, Ryan Beauregard more than anyone. Um, Raja Par, my mentor, helped me and a lot of other people. But really, you know, it's like for me now, Saison Winery, like we have all those things dialed in. We're trying to find our own facility now so I can do it all myself because I live in Santa Cruz and I'm not really, I go to the city two, three times a week for the restaurants because I still love hospitality, but I live in the mountains and I've done it for 20, over 20 years. Like I'm, I'm ready now to like be more in tune with the soil. What was the most challenging part of being a winemaker for the first time? It wasn't a lifelong goal, but it was kind of like your next step in your career, like the next evolution of your career in wine was to take kind of this on and just be more in tune with wine and explore it from a different angle than you had before. What was the biggest challenge with winemaking for the first time and, and essentially, you know, running a winery, you know, wine operation? For me now, kind of digesting it, it's an easily, uh, easy explanation but it's a difficult one to communicate. When I first started making wine, I took contracts on these vineyards and I've spent all my time in Europe, in France, you know, with the Jamais family, with all these families in Burgundy. And I see how they make wine. I see exactly what they do, doing harvest with them and everything. I, I see it. I feel it. Right. But what I never realized was they're making these wines and they're doing these certain processes, you know, stems or no stems or canopy management or picking in a certain day, or watering and not watering, or keeping them dry. Like There's all these things happen, millions of little things that happen in growing, which is really where winemaking is. I thought that I could take that and communicate that directly to Santa Cruz and make the same one. And I realized through vineyard management and winemaking and everything I've done for the last 10 years now, really, when I'm making my own decisions, the greatest lesson that I've learned is I know nothing. The greatest lesson I've learned is that they've learned these processes of what they do in Cut Roti and Burgundy because they've learned it over hundreds of years and generations. And I'm trying to take those things and apply them to a vineyard that's not Cut Roti and not Burgundy. One of the biggest hiccups people get when they're a young winemaker is they're like, I'm going to come in, I'm going to make this type of wine. They taste the wine and they're like, I want to make this kind of wine. No, no, no. Find a vineyard site in which you truly appreciate and understand that could make in a I can make certain principles of that wine. It's cold. It has high acid. It has limestone. You're, you do the math together, one plus one equals two, right? But then when you're done with that, that's what, that's what Jean-Marc Rouleau did in Merceau. 
end of the day, like the biggest lesson I have, you cannot make Burgundy in California. You cannot make California in Burgundy. Everyone tries to swap these things. You can't do it, man. You need to take the lessons you've learned from the producers, from them you learned from. Like I've learned them all from France, from all the, all the harvest I did in there, right? You take, you take the knowledge from that. You apply it to the vineyard in which you know. And what doesn't work, you scale back on and you find a balance. And it takes a decade to do it. It takes a decade to understand this. I started making it in 12. I'm not saying I'm a good winemaker. I make, enough, I, I make wine good enough to sell in the restaurants, but I, I'm not going to reach my potential for another 12 years if I fully dedicate everything to it, which I can. And it's difficult, but you have to. There's no, there's no soul made winemaker. It doesn't fucking exist, man. You do one or the other if you're truly going to be good. What part of the winemaking process in your opinion, is the most important? Oh, it's the growing, hands down. 95% of it is growing. Everything we do in the winery, we're only protecting the fruit in which we harvest in the winery. Anyone says any different has a different opinion than I do. I won't say they're wrong or anything. I just have an opinion. I've been around it long enough. 95% of it is your energy and what you put into your, your farming to the vines that live, to the vines that you can assist or crush, whether with your attention or your absence. It's, it's just like Kernhood. Those vines are going to respond to you as, as good of a parent as you are. When it gets into the winery, you're just keeping it clean, just washing off the trophies they won when they were a kid. That's all. How difficult was the process to find the right people to partner with? You are doing these contracts with these vineyards and stuff like that when you first start out. So how do you determine like who's going to be a good fit for the wine that you want to do? Who's not a great fit methodology in that? Well, you know, you're never going to find someone that's going to farm exactly the way you want. Especially, I mean, you know, I'm in Santa Cruz. These guys are Santa Cruz growers. They're like, we're going to ripen that stuff up till end of November. We're going to get 18 bricks and make 15% alcohol wine. How am I going to partner with that person while knowing their vineyard is exactly where I want to be? For me in Santa Cruz, you know, you have to be true and forward to what you're looking for. Be very clear with them. Put in a contract. And when it comes down to it, they're like, hey, it's like, it's 19 bricks and it's October, the third week of October, which is super late. End of October in most places, Chardonnay, dude, like you're, you're picking it like 26 bricks. These are super cold climate mountainside vineyards. 19 bricks, I want to pick here. And they're like, why do you want to pick here? Because, because you pick at 19, you know, we're going to press full stems in those things. By the time we actually ferment, it's going to be 22, man. We're going to be at 11% alcohol. We're going to be at 11 and a half or 12 by the time we're fully done with this process. We don't want to be at 14, 15. We want to be here. We want to retain the acidity. We want the pH balance. We want all these things. And he's like, well, I understand that, but most people want big, fat, rich stuff. I'm like, well, I'm not making wine for people that want to drink big, fat, rich Chardonnay. I'm making wine that I want to drink because if, if I never sell it, I want to drink Burgundian style wine, high acid, low alcohol. And I don't care about the phenolic ripeness. It's already there, man. Just pick the fruit. Let me do what I want to do. Is there a wine that you produce that Cezanne produces now that you're the most proud of? Or do they all have individual characteristics that you love, like each one differently? Or do you have a favorite? Yes, there is. And it's actually, for me, very, um, very surprising, to be honest with you. So I've spent my life studying Chardonnay and Pinot Noir, Burgundy, right? I found the best Chardonnay and Pinot Noir vineyards in Santa Cruz, in my personal opinion. And I've been great wine from them. But they've always let me down because I'm so focused on that and I've done so much work with that. It's like having a child that you've played baseball with since he was three. No reference to my kid. 
but you know, and you spend all the time and he gets to the minors and he gets to the majors and he plays 19 years in the majors, but he never gets in the hall of fame. And you're like, you did good, but not great. It's like saying that, you know, for me with Pino and Chardin, but the wines I love the most I'm making are the, going to be worried to say this. And I'm fine with people hearing it. My Merlot and my Cabernets are the best wines I make, you know, because I've taken two and a half decades of Pinot and Chardonnay education and all these ideas to make Pinot and Chardonnay, right? I started making Merlot and Cab just a few years ago. And I went to, I went to Bordeaux a year and a half ago and I went to Bordeaux again there. And I'm going to be, I'm going to be in Bordeaux again in April. And I'm learning from these guys about what Cabernet and Merlot really is about. And we're adjusting our leaf management and everything in Santa Cruz. And they're becoming amazing lines just from a couple of years of being in Bordeaux and a fresh mindset of learning about what it really is, as opposed to 20 years of my mind stuck. And I, I, I think they're the best wines I'm making. It's weird. And I only make like 50 cases of each. <laughs> the Pinot, I make like 400 cases. Chardonnay, 600 cases. These I make 50. I'm like, and I'm not charging like $500 a bottle for them like you do in Napa. So I'm charging like 40 bucks a bottle. But I just, I, I look at them and I'm like, you know what? Wow, that's, a, that's a good wine. That's a really good wine. You know, I don't know. I just never, never close your mind to surprise because life is always going to do it. So we're in like 2014 now. Cezanne gets the third Michelin star, like what you told that story. But also I believe that year is the first time that you guys get the Wine Spectators Grand Award, right? Which of the two means more to you? Uh, <laughs> uh, there's no mean more. I mean, they're, they're different beasts, you know, emotionally. Let me explain. Okay. Three-star Michelin. Okay. Think about basketball. Can I do basketball for a second? Three-star Michelin is getting, you know, I'm part of Larry Bird, Magic Johnson, Michael Jordan, Patrick Ewing, Scottie Pippen. I'm part of the, the dream team. I get the Olympic gold. That is three-star Michelin, right? But getting the Wine Spectre Grand Award is like winning the championship holding up the crown, thousands of gold medals get given out of, you know, every Olympics, right? For me though, only once a year, there's one big, big person with the Grand Award. And first time I got my Grand Award, the first Grand Award I got for Cezanne, we worked so hard at getting that award. It was really amazing because when they came and inspected the cellar, they inspected so many wines and all the wines that they asked for were there, perfect condition and authentic. With the exception of one, I was missing... I was missing at that time, 1961 Petrus. In replace of it, I told him I traded it to someone else for two other bottles, a bottle of 1945 Chateau Mouton Rochelle and a bottle of 47 Petrus, plus, you know, some DRC or something I traded. And those two bottles are, are as legendary as that one. And he was like, you know what? That's perfectly fine. Let me see those. I showed to him, authentic. He's like, great. He didn't ask for some of the large format bottles, but I was showing the six liter DRCs and stuff. I mean, to have a grand award, you have to have a cellar that's so deep and so amazing to where you even have stuff that's amazing that's not even on the list. Just there. You have a culture of wine. Wine Spectator's Grand Award list is built for restaurants that have a culture of wine. It's not just you have it all. Not just you list it all. It's about having a culture of wine. And, you know, I mean, that's why, you know, when, they, when I got the Grand Award, and they were like, he has three pages of Ravenna, unheard of these days. And, I, you know, and we still serve crude, not, not to every single person, but majority of our guests know things, we serve crude to every person that walks in the restaurant. You walk in, here's some crude, just for the fuck of it. You know why? Because back in the day, so when we first started Cezanne in 09, when we did it one day a week, I told Josh, I was like, you know what, something? Everyone, you come into a restaurant, you sit down, we're going to drink and stuff, da 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 this and that, right? 
I'm like, no, you know what we do is we want to be great. We want to treat these people like they're in our own home, right? If someone comes into your home, do you ask them or do you just like, hey, have some champagne? Me, when they come in my house, I'm like crushing them with champagne immediately, whether they drink or not. They're like, I don't drink. It's like, fine, give it to your kid. I don't give a fuck, you know? <laughs> and that's what life was like at Cezanne back in the day. It was like, you walked into a Gucci Marathon of just drinking and fun. That's what it was. It wasn't coming in to respect the food and take pictures of it. It wasn't coming in to like be at a three-star. It was how fun could we make it for you to crush your life to where you walk away from that and be like, shit, that was amazing. I don't know what happened. I walked, I sat down, I drank a bunch of champagne. I walked out, blacked out. I'm glad we got an Uber. So do the math on it. So for every grand award, there's 2.7 master sommeliers, right? Master sommelier means you pass your test, you do what you do. What do you do after it? Do you go GM and Napa estate? Do you go do this, that? You're a sommelier. A sommelier means you work in a restaurant. If you go work for a winery, you're no longer a sommelier. You are now a wine director or a general manager or this or that. And, and the thing about being a sommelier is having great restaurant programs. You know? you know how many master sommeliers probably had a grand award? Maybe 10% of them. There are people like Rajat and stuff. This is why we kind of like had fun with the quarter master sommeliers for a long time. They're like, I'm a master sommelier and I run Opus One. Okay, you sell one wine. Congratulations. Rajat's like, I have 7,000 wines on my wine list. I have more wine that you can never dream about. And I can remember there are multiple times where like the quartermaster sommeliers would be doing work with the court. They would like ask to come to like Cezanne or something and have me like set up like a burgundy tasting for them. Because I mean, there's been multiple times I've hosted master sommeliers in my house in Santa Cruz, in Santa Cruz. And I'm like, Taste my Syrah. I love the Syrah. It's great. They're like, okay, cool, man. Let's taste some old school Syrah next to him. I'm like, yeah. I'm like, here's some Alamon and Jamais. He's like, I've never had that before. And I'm like, wait, you're a master sommelier. You've never drank Alamon or Jamais? He's like, no, this is awesome. I'm like, what the fuck is going on with this world? You're a master sommelier. You have not drank the masters of Syrah. I want to jump off my own cliff, man. It's true. It happens, man. You know why? Because they're, they're, they're a different. Listen, there's nothing wrong with the court. I mean, there's a lot of things wrong with the court. But I mean, people study their life off doing something. I'm not trying to bash that stuff. But let's be real. At the end of the day, you're a master sommelier. You come to my house in Santa Cruz and I open up an Alamon for you. You tell me you don't know what it is. I'm sorry. I got to laugh in your fucking face. I'm, I'm sorry. I, I, I'm, I'm just going to let it happen, man. You never heard of Alamon? You never had Alamon? You're a master sommelier. You have a gold pen? You never drank Alamon? Come on. I only have it a couple times a year. And I know the guy on brief occasions, you know, it's like, but like, you've never had it. Those are the people teaching people to be a master sommelier. I'm sorry, man. I can't fucking believe in that one. Do wine awards shape sommelier's list? Like, does it add any pressure to like tweak the list for, you know, the next menu or anything like that? It does. It does. I mean, for me, you know, Grand Award does. It, it does in some ways. But I mean, you have to understand, I have 4,000 selections on my list. There's nothing else to tweak. I just have it all. What am I going to add to it? What am I going to take away from it? I have it all. 4,000 selections. My friend, Spain, France, Italy, everything. I, I, I built it to be a grand award. When it comes to wine awards in this country, around the world, the Wine Spectator Grand Award is worth more than the Master Sommelier, Master Wine, or anything else combined. You know why? Because 90% of wine consumed in fine dining establishments, which include Michelin's three star and the world's 50 best, they include amazing wine lists. This is where the community of wine drinkers and food enthusiasts come together. And if you have a grand award, 
one out of less than 100 in the world, you are at the top of the game, as close as you can get to the world's 50 best, and at the same number as Michelin's third star. You can build something like that, win or lose, you're at the top of your game. When pairing wine with food, how much does like your mental Rolodex come into play? You know, you're looking to pair wine with food in the in terms of you see, you know, pheasant on the menu. Does instantly your mind go to, okay, I can pull this, 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 or this, that'll go with that. Or do you kind of go like, well, maybe I want to try this with that and see how that works. Like, how does that all work? It's kind of a hard spectrum when you talk about that, because, you know, I was tortured by Josh's cooking for 10 years. And when I say tortured, I wasn't, I'm not being tortured in a bad way. I was truly challenged by Josh's cooking for a long time. I mean, you'd be like, I'm doing this amazing lamb shank with lamb jus and artichokes and citrus. And I was like, you know, and we had to play with that. We had to find producers. He challenged me more than any chef in the entire world. And that's what I love about Josh. The fact that I think that my food pairings were the best. My food pairings were the best between 09 and 16 is because he challenged not only what normal menus and food could be. He challenged me as a sommelier and he would change it 10 minutes in. He's like, hey, Mark, by the way, we're no longer doing duck. We're going to do lime and artichokes. And I'm like, what? No, no, what's it? no, no, you can't. No, I just get up. And like, I look at my sommelier and I'm like, Go upstairs and chill down the Sorol, the high acid Sorol, the old one from 89, the one that's not that good, but it's going to be good with this. Go, go, go. And he's like, wah, 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 wah. And he's freaking out and he's running. I'm like, go. Dude, it was like trench warfare with Josh for, for years, but it was the greatest fucking thing I've ever done in my life because it was, it was the most creative, shifting, fun movement ever. You know, if anyone thinks from earlier what I said, it was hard to work with Josh, I want to let you know. That it was 10 times harder than I said before, but it was amazing. And he pushed me to be better every day. There, there was an environment there that was truly, you know, truly trench warfare, but it made us all amazing cooks. I mean, how many Michelin chefs came out of that period of time now and have their own restaurants? How many? I, I, I can't even name them. I mean, I, I, I can name a few of them. I mean, there's one, two, three. You have, you have Cameron, you have, you have um, Rodney, you have... Um, not State Bird, but uh, Chris, Chris Barnes, like yeah, I mean, all these Michelin star chefs all around Northern California that all came from the kitchen because he pushed them, made them insane enough to leave. But when they left, they came with great ideas of like, he was the nuclear bomb that we didn't realize sent all this beauty into the world. And as much as I disagree with him and as much as I don't get along with him, he did that. And I appreciate him for that. When doing a pairing, right? And there are places that do... 15 and they'll do like 20 courses, but you know, they're maybe smaller in size, but you still have to pour two, three ounces if you're doing a pairing and, and you can pour the same wine for, you know, cover two courses or something like that. But is there a point where like a tasting menu can be too long with the amount of wine that you would be consuming, even though it's on the person to regulate themselves? Back in the day, when we first opened Cezanne, Cezanne Sundays, tasting menu every weekend, only on Sundays, right? And all the way through three days a week, I always hated going to restaurants around the world and they pour me a little three ounce tasting and I have to keep it for my next course, right? And if I finish it before my next course comes, then I can't give me anymore because they're poured out those three ounces that perfectly, something we changed with Cezanne was, we're going to pour you the wine for this course. And if you finish it before it comes, we're going to fill it again. And if you finish it halfway through, you're done with your food, we're going to fill it again. And if you finish it when you're done with it and you really liked it, we're going to fill it one more time. 
we had a reputation for fucking people up at the restaurant, man, because we were just like, because people weren't used to that. It's basically like an open bar in a tasting menu restaurant while you're doing the wine pairing. And we fucked people up. Don't get me wrong. We sent people out hammered. But people came back because they loved it. I had this little written saying right above the door because it used to be a dining room that looked into the kitchen to the door, right? There was a little tiny saying above the door you wouldn't see. And I wrote it and it was maybe like four inches high. If you kill it, Mark will refill it. If you're having a wine pairing and you finish your glass and a sommelier or a service staff doesn't come refill it, that is horrible. They need to come refill it. Is it okay if you're doing the pairing, you know, you're limiting yourself or, or you're trying to pace yourself. It's okay if you don't finish like a glass that pairs with the fifth course. Like a sommelier is not going to get like pissed off at you or anything. No, of course not. Are you kidding me? Okay. There's just like, there's an apprehension out there. So. No, 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 no. It's not, no, it's not, it's not a response to what you're saying. Here's the thing. We are there for the guest. If we pour something for you and you don't drink it, it doesn't matter what we think. This is your preference. You do what you want. Now, if you finish it and we don't refill it, we are doing a bad service to you. That is the way my mentality and my staff's mentality exists. We are there for you. You can leave it there. You can ask them to double it up, triple it up and be like, you know what? Actually, at the end, I don't want it. We will never get upset with you. You are the guest. We do exactly what you want. Until you, there's only one time when that, that changes. If you insult a staff member, that's the only thing you can't do as a guest in my restaurant. You insult a staff member, that's like no game. I remember in the old space, Joshua used to read these books by Marco Pierre White. I took everything off the table and stuff. And there was one night when we had a guest member, a guest complaining about something, he looked at my main captain and told him, go and take everything off his table. Don't explain why. Don't ask him for the bill. Don't ask him to pay. Just tell him to leave. And he did it. And it was the most uncomfortable thing I've ever seen in a dining room. Can I tell you something? It was one of the greatest things I've ever seen done. Because that guy was a complete fucking prick. And he deserved to leave that restaurant ashamed. Bye. See you later, bro. And moved on with our service for everyone else. It was a great night. But you can't do that and and hold business. But that was a great night. That was one of the greatest things I've ever seen in my life. End of kind of 2017, Josh Skeens steps away from the kitchen, focuses on other projects. He's working on a ranch and, and other stuff like that. Laurent Gras comes in, takes over for about a year, year and a half. And now you're on to, you know, a team that's got Richard Lee as the CDC, Paul Chung as the culinary director. As somebody who's, you know, an owner of a restaurant, it's a critically acclaimed restaurant. When there's a changeover to a new kitchen leadership, how do you balance kind of and maintain the ethos and vision from, you know, its early days, its founding, but still allow the new team to be creative and kind of push their own boundaries without alienating any loyal guests and loyal diners that you have? When I first came to San Francisco, way before the Michael Mina, Raj Parthing, Raj was still there and Laurent was the chef then, not Melissa. And so I was there and I had a five-way duck and I was like, my mind blown, blah, blah, blah. I never had food like this. And then Raj left and went with Mina and then he hired me a couple years later. And that's when I saw Laurent again. I saw Laurent again in Chicago because I'm from Chicago. Even though I'm living in San Francisco, I'm a big wine guy in San Francisco. I always used to fly back to Chicago to see Cubs games. And because I love the Cubs, I'm born and raised in Chicago. So Laurent Crock came to the restaurant. And, you know, I remember, I remember uh, Josh and I, we had three stars. Josh is not in the restaurant. Josh is barely in the restaurant. He's like in the restaurant one day a week. He comes in, he pisses people off and he runs off. And I had to be there to like pick up pieces. But then also for myself, because he did that, you know, he was there for a day a week. So I was there a day a week and I left too, right? 
I kind of gave up my soul too, because my, you know, if, if my chef, my leader wasn't there, I just kind of ditched myself out too. I'll be honest with you. I kind of gave up too. Josh isn't the reason we lost the three star. It was both of our reasons. You know, we, we both gave up on it. We, we, it was, it was the same reason I told you before. I skyrocketed so high with Raj and Mina that I planted myself to the floor, right? And then Josh and I did the same thing again. And then we just kind of gave up on it and, it, and, we, and we lost it. You know, we didn't, we didn't, Josh comes from Florida. He worked a long time in New York with John George, Boston, those things, came to San Francisco. We worked together. We, neither of us ever had anything great. So we just, we, we didn't know how to keep it. And we just, we just let it fall out of our hands. And all the people that worked for us hard, we just let it fall out of our hands. You know, we just let it go. We could have been the best. We could have been number one. We could have been in Noma. We were rising so fast and doing it. But, you know, it was, it was a um, truly deep-seated hatred between Joshua and myself. And Joshua was the chef. He was the true creative genius. But at the same time, Josh never wanted to go to World's 50 Best. He never wanted to go to Michelin. He hated it. So he sent me. But then he saw me there in the pictures and the videos. And he hated the fact that I was there. And it just self-destructed himself more to where we, we never went anywhere. But he couldn't go. He's like, I can never go. I was like, fine, I'll go for you. He couldn't go. And then the second year, World's 50 Best, we went down to 36. He couldn't go. He's like, I can't go. I can't face these people. I'm like, listen. And I told him, like, listen, you acting like Marco Pierre White is not going to make you Marco Pierre White. You're not a genius because you don't go. You're a fucking dickhead. And this world has to be, the entire world has to be inclusive. You can't be exclusive of everything, Josh. You have to fucking go to the world's 50 best. Stop doing it. No, I don't want to go. I don't want to be inclusive because I just want to be in my hole. And then he stopped going out to public events and then he stopped cooking and then just stopped showing up. And then the world just ended for Cezanne as we knew it. But it's okay because the new world came in. They've been cooking great stuff. I mean, all the people that came in after him, Matt Cameron and everything else, they're all, they're all Michelin restaurants and everything else, you know? I wish I could be a part of them. You know, some days I sit there and I'm like, I wish I could be his part. It started with him because we could be number one. Not that I ever wanted number one in the world's 50 best, but I kind of did. I kind of did. I put all my energy and time into this one thing and I wanted to be there. I wanted to be, I wanted to be Will. You guys expand with Angler. It's kind of a more casual version of Cezanne. Extremely unique sourcing concept, all that stuff. Open the one in San Francisco. What led to determining Angler was the direction to go for expansion versus opening another fine dining restaurant? You can only have one season, period. One of the things that I think Thomas Keller did wrong was have a French laundry and a per se. You can only have one true fine dining restaurant in which the chef in, the chef is in every day, cooking every day. The chef of a true fine dining three-star, Toisy Trois, world's 50 best. Like, look at Echabari. If Victor is not there, they do not open. If he gets sick one day, they close the restaurant, cancel the reservation. Doesn't matter. Doesn't fucking matter. If he doesn't cook the food himself, they're not open, right? That is a true, that is a true world's greatest restaurant. There is one person spends his life cooking one thing in his own style for the guests in his own home, in his own valley, in his own way, with his own sauces, food, and animals around him. That is a three-star Michelin. That is what World's 50 Best is about. It's not about your valet parking or how nice your silver is or anything. When COVID happened, Cezanne switched to more friendly kind of pop-up style, Cezanne Smokehouse. Is that a concept the hospitality group would look to spin off to its own brick and mortar location in the near future? 
We would love to, but Josh saw all of it. He tasted the food. He's like, this is garbage. You guys are garbage. No, don't do this. You can't use my name down. And we said, you know what? We need to operate. We need money. We got to keep these people employed. And that's when we went forward with it. We said, fuck you. And the city loved it. Los Gatos, everyone, they want it. And we are going to open up many of them. But we're going to be very successful with them. Even the McDonald's XCO wants to be a part of it and doing it all. It's going to be a 40-unit location. We're going to make money off it. One cent off of every brisket sold, which means for me, nothing. But if they do a billion of them. So also with COVID, you started doing virtual wine tastings over Zoom. How was that experience? It was really great for me. It was weird. Boxed out for a couple of weeks and then started doing wine tastings with the winery. there in Santa Cruz, walking them through with videos and drones and stuff. And the vineyards and the tastings and the bottles. It was great. I get, I get to be connected to the people in which get to taste the wine that I've spent my entire life making. It's a rare occasion when you're allowed to, to create things in which people enjoy and then see their enjoyment back to you. It's great. I mean, you, you create this podcast, right? You get to see the, the pluses and the negatives and the good and the bad, but you get to see all these things. You, you create this podcast. You get to see hundreds of people tell you they like it or they hate it, right? 99% of the population doesn't create something in which they see hundreds of people experience what they do. I mean, 100% of the population, they shit in the toilet every day, but no one's allowed to talk about it. You get to create an amazing podcast that allows professionals and their clients and your clients and other professionals to engage in a way where it's fun and it's moving back and forth. And that's the wine tastings for you? Sort of, yeah. I mean, for me, you have to understand, I... I've spent an entire life working the floor of restaurants, making my own wine. Now we're opening a tasting room in, in Los Gatos. And on top of that, I'm, always th- I'm, I'm opening tasting rooms in Denver, in Houston, Austin, and downtown Chicago. Was there a, a pretty big spike in terms of sales for the, the online shop, Saison Cellar, during COVID? March 15th, everything dropped. All restaurants closed. It was done, right? June 1st, we went from... Uh, $400,000 in sales a month to seven sixty eight. It was right under $700,000. And we've stayed there since then. Actually, no, no, actually, January, January of this month, we did 1.3. That's because everyone moved from New York. Okay, so half of our sales, $500,000 of our sales are in Florida. Because everyone in New York had their local guys got to New York delivered to their house, right? Now they're in Florida. No one's delivering. And it's like from New York down there, it's, it's a, they have to pay New York tax, which is 1% higher than California tax. So they're buying from us and the shipping is the same. So they're saving 1%. Yesterday's deal was 90000 They're saving $1,000 on the shipping just from us coming here. January and February, we're going to do $500,000 of sales. And, and, and we're, in, we're, we're on the 7th. I'm doing two more sales. I'm doing two more sales there that are going to be, take us over 1.5. Our total sales last year were 4.7. I'll be at 1.5 in a week and a half from now. We have a whole year to go. But our, mar- but our margins aren't, they used to be 25, now they're eight. But it's fine. Do the math, all balances out. Do you still do any of sourcing or making your own sake in Japan? No, I don't, unfortunately. I miss it. I love it so much, man. But, but with the quarantines, I have, you know, I have to do 21 days now in Japan. Going to Kaido. 14 days in Tokyo, I can't go back. I want to go back. Which country are you most excited about in terms of wine production over the next few years? <laughs> uh, France. 
I mean, it's already skyrocketing in price. You have to understand, there's so many great producers. The Mekong, the Cochonnet, everything else. France, New Zealand, and California. Those are the three, men. But all the money is going to chase France. You tasted the champagne from the shipwreck in the Baltic Sea, I think that from like 1907. Was it good? <laughs> oh, my God. Do you actually have that? Yeah. How do you know about that? I do a lot of research. Okay, okay. You do a lot of research, Why? I can tell you one thing. You found the one bottle that made Raj the most nervous ever opening in his life. There was a guy that used to come in, uh, this is what we're talking, uh, let me do the math, 2003, 2004, 2005. We used to call him the gold Jesus. Guy used to come in, a guy is like 21 years old, right? And he always had this 40-pound gold Jesus necklace chain on his neck, right? And he'd come in and he'd be like, uh, don't pray on 1985, $2,000, I drink that. And he always come in with bags of like, right from like um, Saks Fifth Avenue across street and stuff, just like, and boxes and boxes and boxes of fucking Cartier watches and everything, just stacked up. Money, 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 money. And he'd pay in cash. He'd be, he'd be like, 85, 85, don't pray on, $2,000. He'd give it to you in cash, give you another $1,000 in cash as a tip. He's like, boom, eat a dick. I'm going away. And he had like, walked away with a hundred thousand. He did this every Friday, Saturday. Every weekend he did it. And we find out who this guy is. He's like um, you know, a huge landowner in Tracy. Tracy, Tracy, California is like way over past Livermore and stuff. He's like one of the largest pot growers in the United States. His parents granted him all this, all this land. He had huge government fucking contracts to grow pot in this. And he was growing like, he was the first true official pot grower that was legal. He come in with cash. Dude, boom. Didn't give a fuck. On the list, on the list, 1906, Baltic Sea, Baltic Sea bottle, Cuvée Americaine down there, right? Always on the list. And it was on the list for, I don't know, like $8,000 or $7,000. Something crazy, right? And he's like, he always told me, he's like, one day I'm going to drink that. One day I'm going to drink that. But he'd come in and he'd drink $3,000 Magnums at 85 Cristal. It was so close to it. I'm like, dude, just drink it. It's like, come on, just pop it off one day. He's like, no, I'm not ready. Another 85 Cristal is great. I'm drinking. And it was just him and his girlfriend. He would drink half of the Magnum and leave the rest for us. He didn't care. He's like, hey. And they left a $2,000 tip on him. He was the nicest guy in the world. And you're fucked, dude. The guy like, anyway, he came in, right? And Raj, Raj was there that night. And he said, sat down. And he's like, hey, Mark. I'm like, yeah. He's like, I want to open that 1906 tonight. Actually, no, it was like 10 grand. It was like 85 something with tip and stuff. Mark, I want to drink the 1906 tonight. Because we just watched Titanic last night. We want to drink it. We went over there and typed it in. Eight grand, put it in. Ticket came out, gave it to Raj. I was like, hey, Raj, go grab the bottle. If I sold the bottle, Raj had to go get it. If, if he sold the bottle, I had to go get it. And, he went, and I was like, gave it to him. I was like, go get it, baby. He's like, no shit. You sold you sold eight thousand dollar nineteen oh six. You sold it. I'm like, yeah. And he wants you to open it because you were the maestro, and he found out you're here tonight. He wasn't going to open it tonight, but the fact that you are here, Raja Par, he wants you to open it. Okay. He's like, okay, great. I went down again. Brings it back up. No label, no anything, and it's wrapped in hard rubber plastic because you have to do that to get it up from the pressure from all the way down from the bottom to see up, right? Raj is trying to open it and stuff. Hand shaking. He's like, ah, I don't know if it was from alcohol abuse or he was just like nervous he's like i can't do it i'm like fuck it i got it i just took a wine can i just went boom and i just ripped it all the way up the top he's like <gasps> raj sounded like he had a heart attack not even that. the guy that was watching me open he was like cool get it because i'm the one that serves him every day right he never sees raj 
I ripped that fucking thing back up and I ripped the plastic off and the cork and the, and, and the metal spine is still there. And I'm like, okay, put my hand on top of it as you should. Take the metal off, you know, no pressure. I started twisting a little bit and then all of a sudden right in the, right inside of my hand where the pressure should be, right? It was like, boom, and I feel the pressure. And I was like, pop that motherfucker off, pour the nine tone six out to the glasses. It was fresh and it's clean. It was amazing, dude. It was like, no, seriously, I poured it out. I poured it out. Even Raj and everyone, because he wanted to pour out for everyone to see what it was like. It was the cleanest, freshest thing I've ever seen in my life. It was, there was no, zero oxidation, anything. I smelled it myself and I was like, shit, that's 1906 champagne. I mean, I mean, 1996 champagne. It was mind-blowing to everyone. We pounded all out. We high-fived them. We bounced out. That guy went to jail for 20 years for selling cocaine. I heard that later. But you know what? <laughs> but hey, it was the greatest bottle I've ever had. The greatest bottle of champagne I've ever had in my life. Are you still a Dunkin' Donuts guy, even though they uh, don't make the donuts fresh daily anymore? Well, you know, it's a funny thing you said. I have a coffee machine in my kitchen. My kitchen, you know, is a commercial kitchen. It's pretty large, comfortable. I drink Dunkin' Donuts coffee, brewed in my pot every day. And uh, I, don't, I don't eat the donuts anymore in those things. So my father and I, when we used to, uh, before he died, Dunkin' Donuts right there next to our house, right? And there was a little, there was a little seat, a little comfortable seat that if you walked in, you go to the counter, you sit, you eat Dunkin' Donuts, blah, blah. But most people there in uh, Gary, Indiana and stuff, it's always bang, bang, donuts and go because you have to go work and stuff. If you walk to the right and you go by four or five seats, I mean, four or five banquettes, all the way towards the end, there's this little hidden place at the end of the bar. And Dunkin' Donuts always has one. There's one right there. And that's where my father and I spent five years of our life together before he died. When I was a child that I can remember. And we're most likely he can remember me when he died before he got his cancer treatment and everything. There were five years that we spent together. Think about that time every day. I always wanted a chocolate donut. He always wanted the old no-hole donut. Remember the original donut? It has a little thing at the top and you hold it and you dunk or a frosting and they never let out, never allowed anything out of it, right? Remember? I always got chocolate ones. I never realized why he always wanted that donut because it never tipped his fingers. Hope this one day. And my son, my son's going to say the same thing. And that would be a great day. Win or lose. It just seems like you should have been a Sox fan just from growing up in, you know, Indiana, Southside and everything. Why are you a Cubs fan and not a Sox fan? Everything comes and goes. You know why I'm a Cubs fan? Because my father was a Cubs fan. My father died 11. Both my sisters, they wanted a, my, my mom and dad wanted a boy always, right? Both my sisters were born and they were like, boy, 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 no, shit, no, shit. My sister Mary won the national championship and college scholarship on pitching softball. My sister Lisa, Notre Dame pitching, Northern Indiana. I came from a family of baseball, how to play baseball, how to do it strategically. He didn't have a boy. They were born, I was born in 82. They were born in, they were born in 71 and 73. But they, he created professional baseball pitchers and stuff and players and what he did. If he would have lived past 11, I would be pitching in major leagues right now. This next question comes from the previous guest on the podcast, Chef Tyler Stemmer. He's the executive chef over at Pleasantry in Cincinnati, Ohio. He left behind a question for you. What are you doing to keep your philosophy fresh, up to date in the winery wine business? Wake up every day, look at yourself in the mirror and ask yourself, do you love what you're doing today? And if the answer is no too many times in a row, change what you're doing. Don't believe your own bullshit. What question do you want to leave behind for the next guest? Can be anything. Come on. 
Don't believe your own bullshit. Do you? 10 more questions here. We ask these to everybody who comes on the podcast. So it's a compare and contrast across all the episodes for the listeners. Who is the biggest influence on your career thus far? My biggest influence on my career thus far is probably Raja Parham. What's your desert island wine? Stuck on a desert island, only wine you could drink. Ravana. Buto. What's a restaurant you'd recommend that isn't your own? What part of the world? San Francisco. You guys aren't open tonight. You go to Rich Table. You know, because it'll fill your soul with creation doesn't matter because the carbs are going to pound you out. I've had more great meals at Rich Table than I have at any other Michelin restaurant in the city. Rich in his own shit. That's what it's about. Like in Paris, you go to Maison. You go to the Bistro Pabelle, Le Mijon. You go to the places that are local and fun and crazy. They do weird shit. Razor clams, man, with fucking citrus and, you know, springs on it. That's what you want to eat. I mean, you travel a lot, like you said. Do you have a bucket place you haven't been to that you that you haven't eaten at that you want to eat at? Copenhagen, geranium. I've been there before. But me, my bucket list, one restaurant would be geranium right now. Because geranium right now is restaurant number one. It's the greatest restaurant performing right now in the world. And if I could have a chance to get there right now, and I know certain, and Soren's a friend, but he never responds to my text messages, I'll never get there. And when my friend never lets me in, I can never go. But I can tell you right now, Geranium is the number one restaurant in the world. So is there a place that you then, since you've been to Copenhagen before, is there a place that you haven't traveled to that you still want to travel to? Antarctica, the last place I haven't been to. What's the craziest thing you've seen happen in a restaurant while you're working? Leo comes here. He's driving up from my line with his like this new like fucking Targa and like five hundred thousand dollar perfect Porsche. He's like, I get to drive it back down. He calls his fucking assistant, right? And he's like, You need to take my private jet up from LA to San Jose, San Francisco. You come up here, you drive my perfect new one off fucking Porsche. I go back because the food is here is so good, the wine here is so good. We have to stay here, and I, we just stayed there all night, pumping all the food and wine and stuff, and he just partied. That was a pretty cool night. Do you have a uh, food or drink guilty pleasures or anything that you know is terrible for you? But uh... A hand-rolled cigarette by one of the greatest actors in the world. There was a night also where Johnny Depp, right after he married that, that girl. Amber Heard, yeah. For his honeymoon, he booked us out. In, in what you were talking about, the side, the side spectrum room, right? Paid $20,000 for this room. And just for him, for employees, everything he did. He's like, you know, smoking cigarettes and stuff. He was going outside, smoking cigarettes, come back in. And we're like, hey, man, hey, Johnny, you're rolling your own cigarettes. You're going outside to smoke them. I told him, I was like, hey, Johnny, come here. And he came across the bar. And I whispered into his little ear with like 17 fucking rings in it. I was like, I'm the founder. I'm the partner. I'm the owner. Smoke your cigarettes here. And he went like, are you serious, mate? The only way I'd feel comfortable doing that, if I rolled a cigarette for you. And I was like, then roll me a fucking cigarette. And he right there. Roll in a green leaf, fucking green fucking tobacco cigarette. You know, one of those dark looking cigarettes he has in the pictures? He actually has those. And he gave it to me and he lit it for me. He kind of tell you something right there, right there in the face of my mouth. I was like, Johnny Depp just let me a fucking cigarette he rolled for me. Is that cool? Can I roll and smoke on I'm like, you can smoke on I anyway, man. It's like, hey, I'll be, and every time, if you light a marble, I'll smack you in your face if you don't light when I smoke. The entire night, he rolled like 45 cigarettes. He refused to let me smoke anything, but something he rolled himself. Coolest fucking guy in the world. Which of the following wine documentaries would you recommend? Psalm, Psalm 2, Psalm 3, Sour Grapes, Decanted, or Blood into Wine? 
None of them. They're all bullshit. Psalm 1, 2, and 3 are absolutely garbage fucking movies. And I know everyone that's in it. I love them all. They're nice guys, right? That's a garbage fucking movie. Which of the following Hollywood wine movies would you recommend? Bottle Shock, A Good Year, Uncorked, or Sideways? Bottle Shock was such a great movie. You know why? Because, you know, living in Santa Cruz, man, you just felt like that that real true mountain energy, you know? Long-haired kid, but then the Mexican banged out his girlfriend. Hey, it all happens this way because, you know, it's what it is. But there was a lot of love and passion. Yeah, I like Bottle Shock a lot. Wine recommendations. Four categories for you. So what's your wine recommendation for under $20 a bottle? Sandy. What's your wine recommendation for under $50 a bottle? Chateau Malonavant. Wine recommendation for under $100 a bottle? Hirsch Vineyards Pinot Noir. Wine recommendation for over 100 no limit on price. The greatest wine you're going to buy in 2019 is Domaine Jamais Cote Roti. It'll cost you about $250 a bottle if you're lucky to find it. Because his production, instead of 18,000 cases is this year, 4,000. Buy it now. Right now, no one knows about it. You can still buy it for $200 a bottle. In a year and a half, I guarantee you it's going to be 750 Buy it now. Run away with it. I already have six cases myself because my son was born there and my dog's name for him. Favorite Instagram account you follow? I don't follow Instagram. Um, if I did follow an Instagram account, I'd follow Jean Gona. Where can people find you? Social media, website, plug all your stuff. I used to plug a lot. I gave up on it all. Hey, how about this? How about this? In March, everyone that is part of this post, if I get at least 20 people ask me to post, I'll, I'll start posting my life again. And I travel around a lot, so it'd be fun. I just want to thank you so much for your time. I spoke to a lot of people in my life about a lot of different things. You allowed me to speak very clearly and comfortably about a lot of things in my life. Yeah, I'm glad you, you were able to, to do it, man. It's going to be an awesome episode. A big thanks again to Mark Bright for coming on the podcast, taking some time out of his evening I'm over on the West Coast there. He spent the day in the vineyard and jumped on a Zoom call with me and talked about his career and everything. Way more information than I ever anticipated, you know, him divulging or anything like that. So super thankful to him for being generous with his time. Again, follow him on Instagram at Mark Bright Wine. Uh, at Saison underscore winery, at Saison underscore seller uh, is the online platform where you can buy bottles of wine, champagne, all that stuff. If you subscribe to the newsletter, it'll come to your email inbox. Pretty much it's like once a day and they give you kind of an update on stuff that they're expecting or stuff that just arrived and whatnot too as well. Super easy to use the, the wine platform too as well. At Saison SF is the restaurant. At Saison Hospitality is kind of all the restaurants and stuff that they're involved in too as well. Um, at Angler San Francisco is their other restaurant. At Saison Smokehouse is the concept that they did uh, during COVID that they're hopefully going to spin off into kind of some standalone locations uh, down the road too as well. So check out all that stuff. And when you get over to San Francisco, make sure get a reservation over at Saison. It's an awesome experience. Open kitchen, can see right into it. Just crazy wine list. I mean, the book is two, three inches thick from what I remember. And the food's amazing. The atmosphere is awesome. You know, some of those people have moved on to other things from, you know, the time that we were there. But, you know, I followed on Instagram and it's still got the same vibe and ethos and everything like that too as well. So if you ever get a chance to get out there, I highly recommend that you do and uh, give them a visit. But that is the end of this week's episode. 
like I said, again, follow us on Instagram at SpoonMob and, and make sure to subscribe, follow the podcast wherever you get your podcasts from. All previous episodes of the podcast can be found in the feed um, or on the website. Just go to SpoonMob.com and uh, you'll find the website and everything up there. You can write in questions, comments, feedback. If there's anything you ever thought of that you wanted to like ask a chef or ask a winemaker or sommelier or whatever, feel free to write it in. It can be anything. You can just email us directly either spoonmob at yahoo.com or go to the website. There's a contact portal. You can write in your question and, and we'll put it on uh, one of the episodes. I pretty much go through them and try and pick one that fits best for whoever that guest is. And uh, once that is asked to a guest, I'll hit you back and say, hey, you know, it's going to come out whatever dates episode. Um, so you can kind of be on the, on the lookout for it. So appreciate everybody who's been writing in all that stuff too as well. That's it for this week. More episodes on the way. If you're new to the podcast, welcome. Glad you guys are here. If you're a longtime listener, appreciate you continuing to listen and continuing to help spread the word. And uh, we will talk to you guys next week.